Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Megan Bent, managing partner at Harbinger Ventures. Harbinger Ventures is a leading growth equity investment firm focused on identifying and scaling high growth companies in the consumer sector. They are the only fund I know where each entrepreneur they invest in also has an equity stake in the larger Harbinger portfolio. Some of their investments include Once Upon a Time, Cora, and Vinebox. We talk a lot about different trends in CPG. For example, are milk alternatives better positioned to win versus plant-based meats? We discuss the value of a concentrated portfolio versus a more spray and pray approach. So without further ado, here's Megan. Megan, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show. So what was your initial attraction to consumer packaged goods? I have always loved consumer packaged goods, but I would say there were three things that really brought me to the space. The first is I love how sort of tangible and physical and interactive um, consumer packaged goods are. They're, you know, they're understandable. They're intuitive. So there's something you can bring into your home and really experience The other thing that I really love, though, is, you know, these are brands that are really practically and emotionally integrated into consumers' lives. They're uh, really relevant. And that's something that, from an investment perspective, gives us multiple angles to create advantage. You know, on the brand side, you can create real emotional connectivity. But on the product side, you can deliver a superior product in terms of, you know, efficacy or taste. And so, you know, those multiple points of advantage are, are really valuable. Um, and then the last is it's always evolving and the strategics in this space, unlike tech, have largely outsourced innovation. So if you look at how much they spend on innovation, it's peanuts. It's really small amounts of capital. So they sort of like to sit on the sidelines and let small brands and investors create the next big thing and then buy it. So from an investment perspective, that's like a treadmill of M&A that allows us to stay in this space for a really long time. That makes a lot of sense. So the opportunity that you're seeing is that since incumbents are really not being forward-thinking just in terms of um, actual product innovation side, this is a huge opportunity on the investment side to actually to invest in early-stage companies. You're exactly right. The large strategics in our space are not innovators. They're operators. They're excellent at supply chain, efficiency, logistics. You know, it's really complex getting thousands of SKUs on shelf across thousands of retailers at a profitable margin. That's what they're good at. They're not so good at sort of figuring out what's the next greatest trend. And they've experimented sort of on the sidelines with a variety of ways to play in the innovation space, but they've been most successful buying. When you're evaluating brands, I think you first spoke about brand authenticity. There's so many challenger brands um, out there right now. And in many ways, they're so easy to start a business, especially given like the online D2C channel. What goes into your process and thinking about what authenticity really means? 
Yeah, it's such a good question. And it sort of goes to this idea of what is the IP or the moat in a consumer packaged goods company? If you can outsource manufacturing and get a co-manufacturer up and going with minimum order quantities that are negligible, if you can pop a product, you know, online with your own website, right, and start start selling by in Shopify, there's all this infrastructure that's been built that have really reduced barriers to entry and allowed anyone with a good idea to like get product out there and start selling. So we think a lot about like, what is your actual competitive advantage? How do you build a moat? And and candidly in our space, I've moved away from the idea of a moat, which is like a single line of defense to more of like a minefield, right? How do you create multiple elements of surprise along the way so that any given competitor struggles to make it from point A to point B and really compete? And authenticity for me aligns around does the founder, does the creator have a real point of advantage where their perspective in the industry gives them credibility bringing that point of difference to market. So, you know, I think about Once Upon a Farm, right? And the role Jennifer Garner plays there. She's not a celebrity spokesperson. She's a mother. She's on the board of Save the Children. She has dedicated her life, right, to improving childhood nutrition. And she's dedicating her celeb power to this brand against the mission. That's really authentic, but it also shows up in the product. It's the safest baby food on the market. It's the healthiest baby food on the market. And so you're integrating the mission and the values all the way back to the product. Where things fall apart is when the brand says one thing and does another. So when it says, you know, we're the best toothbrush and, and the, you know, the, the future of, of dental health care, but then it turns out the toothbrush doesn't really last that long. Dentists disagree if it's efficacious. You know, you, you sort of can't fabricate authenticity. What you're saying has to connect to the product, the customer experience, and the brand. And so in our companies, we really look for that thread to flow all the way through from that initial vision back to, you know, the product arriving in the consumer's home and what that experience is like. I appreciate those examples. That makes a lot of sense. On the competitive advantage on the product side, if a product is truly innovative, I'd imagine that the company is much more vertically integrated than not. Is that the case? Yeah, you're probably right here, right? Like as you design these products, in theory, you can own your formulation, but the value or the IP or the defensibility of that formulation in like a food product is de minimis. You can have a process patent where you're, the way you actually manufacture the product or source is somewhat unique. Again, sort of these are minimally defensive. They're incremental to the IP of the company. If you really want something that is sort of like transformationally unique, you need to own the manufacturing from start to finish. And, and I think it's why you see this correlation in CPG between, you know, products that aren't really that differentiated because they're primarily co-manufacturing. What are they good at? Branding and marketing, right? So they're really brand and marketing companies versus uh, manufacturing companies. No, it makes sense. But, but in order for you to get interested in a company, you also have to have that manufacturing piece needs to be differentiated. Is that right? It needs to be differentiated and scalable to the point where you have a relative advantage with your consumer. So I'll, I'll give you an example that brings this to life. Our wine brand sources clean wine, puts it in a patented bottle in a co-manufacturer that 
you know, any good brand could manufacture in. So along the way, you know, the sourcing of the wine is really um, driven by product excellence, but not necessarily IP. The bottle is our own format and we own those molds, but someone could knock off something kind of similar. And then on the manufacturing side, we're running it through a co-manufacturing facility. In aggregate, those three steps create a very unique product that consumers feel is really special and would be expensive for another company to go compete against. None of those elements are sort of definitively defensible in their own right. The other examples are, you know, if you look at Hims and Row, they're sort of pulling uh, existing products, at, you know, from the healthcare space as they roll off, you know, patent protection, they're white labeling them on their new brand. The real advantage they have is more on the commercialization, how they're taking them to market. It's about telehealth. So it's not the actual product, right? That's unique. It's the business model. And um, in consumer, that can be a really material barrier for entry also. Well, let's go into that. I mean, thinking about, well, not just telehealth, but more so on like the D2C channel side. You had, um, as you said, that's um, the opportunity there was exploring or exploiting healthcare on a new channel, right? That's more direct to consumer. But we've seen now, you know, the past few years on D2C, you know, I think one of the, the most common growth strategies is using Google and Facebook ads, for example. And there's so much now, you no longer have those arbitrage opportunities that you did in the early 2020s. So my question to you is, is it enough um, for you to get involved? Because like just saying like, oh yeah, it's a new format almost uh, for a company doesn't seem like it's enough per se. You're you're 100% right. You know, you go back, whatever, 15 years and direct to consumer alone may have been a sort of defensible first mover advantage in the business model where there was real uh, marketing arbitrage. There was a real opportunity to sort of directly speak to consumers in an incredibly cost-effective way and scale faster than businesses had scaled in a really long time because you'd removed the middleman of retail or, or brokers or distributors. From our perspective, fast forward to where we are today, you know, five years ago, omni-channel was the way you defended that. So the efficiency on direct to consumer was was softening and the offset was having real expertise on maybe Amazon or Target or Sephora. And the coupling of analog and digital channels was a new skill. And so there was a lot of companies that hadn't figured it out. That was the advantage. Today, that's maturing, right? Even P&G has figured out how do you sort of manage Amazon, Target.com, Instacart, Target as a retailer, and direct-to-consumer. So where's the white space? So I go back to this concept of consumers ever-evolving and omni-channel, I think, right now and where you get marketing white space is again being renegotiated. And there'll be really interesting elements over the next couple of years around where you can find the marketing efficiency. And I think there's not going to be as easy of an answer as there was on Facebook 15 years ago. I think it's going to be about sophisticated layering and sequencing of marketing to both get the targetability, the first party data, but also the scale and efficiency. What do you think about investing at at Harbinger, what are the the categories that you're focused on? Yeah, so from a category perspective, we've been interested in a couple of different spaces. Some of this is showing up in our portfolio, and some of it's sort of showing up in our in our pipeline. Um, you know, the first is you know general nutrition. 
right? And which segments of the population have been relatively underserved. I mentioned Once Upon a Farm, it's fresh baby food. When I first invested in 2016, there was fresh dog food in the refri- you know, in the refrigerated set at the grocery store. Uh, baby food was still shelf stable, right? That's sort of this like crazy moment where your baby food is older than your baby. And this was a company that was using new food technology to bring better, more nutrient dense um, products to market. What's interesting when you sort of get into these very targeted populations is there can be a misperception in the venture or private equity space that targetability equals a constrained TAM, right? Like, is baby big enough? And so the business worked really hard to sort of overcome that bias against the segment and it's become a really established brand in early childhood nutrition focused on transforming, you know, American palates uh, with a with a bigger mission of, of health and wellness. We like that theme as it relates to several other populations all the way up through sort of aging and, and baby boomers, which are sort of overlooked and undervalued as everybody focuses on millennials and Gen Z, but they're huge. They've got disposable um, share of wallet and, and they're also seeking solutions. That's a space we've really liked. Wine has been a space where if you look at the broad landscape of alcoholic beverage, there's been a ton of capital success, proof points in spirits, um, big exits, right? Sort of celebrity backed or not. Um, Beer went through a real renaissance, whether micro brews or macro brews. Wine has sort of stayed really stagnant, but it's equal in size, right? And consumption as beer and spirits, it just tends to target a population um, that has been less easy to innovate around. And so our wine brand, for example, really transforms how people buy and consume wine. It's as simple as like, you know, you wouldn't ask people to buy beer in a keg and we're asking consumers to buy a 750 ml bottle of wine, even though they live alone. And so format innovation, ingredient innovation, transparency to that industry has been something we're really excited about. So those are two areas where we've been, where we've spent a lot of time, our portfolio reflects them and we're interested going forward. Thinking about on the influencer side or having like a celebrity attached to a brand, how do you view that? Because on one hand, obviously it could be such an amazing, amazing um, activation for growth. On the other hand, you're also, you're at risk in case anything were to happen to celebrity or if there was um, anything in the media. Read a report yesterday that like, um, in terms of like strategics are, love to hear your thoughts about this, but that like strategics can sometimes be wary if a celebrity is involved in a company. The big picture here is I view celebrities with skepticism generally. And And the reason is because, you know, the temptation to pull a big lever, right, and think there's a a silver bullet that solves your growth or brand awareness problem is really tempting. But the reality is for a really young brand to activate a celebrity productively is really hard, right? You just don't have the tools and the resources. For Neutrogena to leverage a brand to continue to build brand affinity, brand awareness, the economics, right? And the operationalization makes more sense. So in small companies, I tend to be highly suspicious of exactly how and where you're going to be able to create a huge amount of value from a celebrity. So over the 15 or so brands we've done over the last 15 years, we've we've done one with a celebrity. And, and that's been very intentional and very purposeful. It also reflects our life stage. Series A brand, as I said, it's it's a lot harder for them to genuinely get a, um, a celeb involved. What has been interesting, though, on the celebrity side and the influencer side is the way that celebrities have been popping up in cap tables. They're investors now. 
right? As they're showing up on organic social, sort of just as advocates of the brands they love, paid or unpaid, they sit more in that influencer channel. The evolution of a celeb, not just as a paid spokesperson, but as sort of a invested individual is relatively new. And I think it speaks to the evolving role of a celebrity. They realize like, I don't want to age out of my industry too early. Not everyone's Meryl Streep and can work, you know, her whole... And and so they're like, I need to be selling headphones. I want to be selling t-shirts. I want my own cosmetic line. Get me live on Facebook. And so from the business manager perspective, some of the early integration as an investor, as a business person maybe gives them permission to expand their book of business. And so I think it's reflective of where Hollywood feels some of the pressure on the production and distribution side. So we're going sort of left field because I more space, but that's where it is. On the, the celebrity risk side, look, you, you better build those contracts intelligently and pick good people. It sort of goes back to great business fundamentals of like, know who you're working with, make sure the values are aligned, make sure the goals are aligned, make sure this brand is important and they're in control of their life. The wariness right around the celeb that goes AWOL and brings brand risk is real. And I think that just goes back to the selection process and who you choose to work with. That's fair. And also, if the celebrity is on the cap table, understanding what their involvement actually is. If they're very active involvement or if they're you know, not so, or if they're more silent and maybe non-active uh, per se. I think that's also important because I think if you do have a celebrity on the cap table that is actually very active and strong, yes, you could have that potential amazing growth or that growth lever. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if something were to happen, there's also a lot of risks involved because that celebrity is also attached to the company too. So that is also tough to, uh, to handle. I think so. You know, I always say to, to founders when they say, you know, I've got a celebrity that reached out and wants to get involved. I say, what's it worth to you? You know, do you do you want to be able to drop their name and in investor calls? In which case, the only ask from them is they put hard dollars on your cap table and stay quiet. You know, you get to make the announcement, not them. Um, or do you want something more? Are you trying to leverage their social network or something else? And all of those strategies can work. They're just worth different things. You know, in the, in the Oatly IPO, I was sort of fascinated by how frequently um, some of the celeb investors were quoted. You know, this is a business that's raised hundreds of millions of dollars and they, you know, from Blackstone and they're dropping Oprah Winfrey and Jay-Z as, as key investors. And, and so they're, you know, people like to talk about it. So it, it actually can be great sort of press fodder, um, which, which can help with brand awareness. When you're looking at companies, how do you maybe internalize or thinking about, okay, this is a business that actually is venture scalable or not? So the technical answer is, you know, you sort of go through what we call like a TAM analysis, which is total available market. So you start with like, what's the big idea? And you, you segment and segment it down to the population dynamics based on channel and price. And, and then you look at it and you say, you know, if you're investing in a total available market that only is like a hundred million, right? You know, you look at beef jerky, for example, it's a, it's a billion dollar category. It's had a bunch of successful exits. You look at the fragmentation, the regionalization, and you say, can the category sustain another big win? You know, it, if you look at how that billion dollars is divided up, is there a path to build a hundred million dollar business anymore. Then you look at the strategics and you say, who wants to buy this, right? Does anybody have a, a portfolio asset that's underperforming and, and would really benefit from this? If you've got a small market that's pretty well served, if you've got a strategic portfolio that's that's performing okay, IPO markets 
sometimes accessible and consumer, more so today, but you know, 10 years ago it wasn't. So we'll see if these small um, listings really perform, then that's not a venture asset, right? That's that's more of a lifestyle business. Build that thing profitably until you see the dynamics change where there's real white space to run. When you fund into a market dynamic where there's not sufficient white space, it's basically just dilution and disappointment, right? You're sort of taking capital that you can't really invest at a strong ROI, which means you own less and less of your business and your investors get sort of more and more ornery and life's not so good. So I think about like, when's the right time to raise the round? It's when you really start to understand, like, I've got a business model here that responds to capital, um, either through marketing or, you know, distribution acquisition. And the, the space looks big enough to support a sizable business that someone would buy. As an investor, how do you balance when a company comes to you and thinking of, okay, this market's small right now, but I actually think that this market is going to grow and we could own this market and maybe be a market leader in this category versus, hey, like this market's pretty big already. So I don't know, just kind of like with like those two strategies, how do you think about it? And, you know, intellectual honesty here is the hardest part of developing a great TAM, because if you get bought in, you're sort of looking for ways the TAM will grow. And so having having that contrarian perspective on your team, right, that in, inherently kills the vibe and is like, well, remember this one, or remember this one, That that's the power of diverse thinking, right, is just like keep the pressure on the downside case. So you really have an understanding of if things go sideways and this ends up at the small end of the market, or we end up being the third best brand instead of the first best brand, what's it worth? Can I cover my downside? That That is our, one of our ways that we approach the TAM exercise. I think the, the other piece is we do quite a bit of custom research, either you know pre-investment or immediately post-investment to really understand um, like the psychology of the category and the psychographics. So I'll give you an example of one of my own beliefs. You know, plant-based milk is better positioned to continue to take enormous share from milk than plant-based beet, than plant-based meat is from meat. And that's because we don't have a great chicken cutlet yet, right? And if you think about how much meat is a chicken drumstick, a chicken breast, we have ground beef that performs relatively well, but that's kind of it right now. We still don't have a great steak. And so the, the belief on plant-based meat's TAM and it's going to take 30% is contingent upon format innovation that just doesn't exist today. It's a real bet on technology and sort of consumer openness to manufactured food long-term. Lots of risk, 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 risk on the TAM. I have a discount. On the plant-based milk side, plant-based milk is pretty good. It foams really well for cappuccinos. It tastes pretty good. The palatability is consistent. And so you sort of think about, and there's sort of like more understanding of hormones flowing through milk. You've got the vitamin profiles are equivalent. And so it can pretty organically start to take share of wallet. And so I'd be longer on plant-based milk, achieving the TAM that's been underwritten to it than plant-based meat in the near term. For the plant-based meat side, what are your thoughts on cell-based meat? Are you pretty bullish about cell-based meat? You know, listen, I like to listen to the consumers. And there was some recent research that came out where the vast majority of Americans, right, it was like 70 to 80%, think beef is pretty healthy. It's a good, it's a good source of protein. It's a good source of iron. And it tastes great. 
right? So for that consumer population, it is a huge leap for them to decide to build, to consume something that's pretty unfamiliar, unless the taste is perfect, unless it's cheaper, unless it has lower calories, like something really sort of functional to drive the conversion in the medium term. In the long term, sort of the, the elements of the environment, sustainability is likely to create a larger and larger percent of the population that says, I think meat's pretty healthy, but I'm worried about the environment, so I'm going to cut down my meat and purchase accordingly. So I for, for cell-based meat, there has to be sort of like a... Um, an honesty there around how willing is the consumer to make these trade-offs today? How are you going to educate them? How are you going to price it to create those incentives? And the taste better be killer. You know, it's interesting because in, if you look at sort of like GMOs, right, and there's already been precedent for genetically modified fruits and vegetables that have more durability and, and resilience. And so in theory, they have the ability to like feed the world. But, you know, Whole Foods crowd is pretty suspicious of them. And the people that can afford to buy them have decided that there's something really risky there. And so in cell-based meat, you have something really similar to genetically modified fruits and vegetables, where on the one side, it's, it's a really transformational innovation that could, you know, support broader nutrition for the planet and reduce carbon impact, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the, the first movers who usually adopt that are inherently suspicious of things that are scientific manufactured. So it's, it's kind of interesting. It's a really unique adoption cycle. That actually is really interesting because I mean, with all sorts of innovation, it starts with, you know, always going to be a premium product because the innovation obviously is so expensive, the R&D costs and just what have you. And it's interesting as you put it, and I didn't really think about that, how if, you know, the premium customer, the Whole Foods customer is buying, is very suspicious of GMO, then that actually could be tough then for cell-based meat to actually get into market. You have a marketing hurdle. Yeah, a real puzzle. Real puzzle there. Let's talk about um, Harbinger. How did you um, end up founding your own venture capital fund? So I came to venture capital probably in a very unusual way. You know, I'm not classically trained. Um, I don't have my MBA. I didn't work at a bank. I didn't work at a private equity firm. I sort of stumbled into this industry and was given an unusual amount of responsibility and access early because of a great entrepreneur. So I was in strategy consulting, an entrepreneur um, named Brendan Sinnott, whose first business was Bare Naked that he sold to Kellogg, but has subsequently built a couple others, you know, wanted to uh, invest in natural products. And he wanted to do it in a really flexible way, a strategic way, a unique way. And I joined him to do that. And, and you know, between us, Mike, I had really no business um, managing anybody's money, but that's the beauty of entrepreneurs. They're like, you're smart. You can figure this out. And you're like, oh my God, I'll try. And so I, I worked with him for over 10 years. We built a great portfolio. Uh, some of the brands we invested in are, you know, Evil Foods um, was here in Boulder. We invested in Siggy's, um, a candy company called Little Secrets, an apparel company called Pact. And, you know, all of these businesses um, shared certain themes, which was like a real rethinking of the consumer model. You know, Brendan's, you know, as superpower, right, is is staying one step ahead of the consumer. He sold bare naked like it was soda, right? Like a beverage model applied to a 
snack. He was early on Omnichannel with PAC sitting in Target, Whole Foods, and direct-to-consumer um, before that was really a thing. And so what I learned from him was just a deep, deep reverence of the importance of the founder in these businesses, how much risk they're willing to take and how important that is to break through early on. Um, I also observed, because we were building businesses um, without a proper fund structure, we were doing sort of single investments. I also observed how strangely disconnected some of the capital partners could be from their businesses. Like they weren't operators, they weren't entrepreneurs, they were asset allocators, they were sort of financial wizards. And when you put those things together and then you hit a bump in the road, and which is inevitable in a small company, there was so much lost in translation, right? So much value um, that dissipated, like the productivity gap was enormous. And so I started to generate this question of like, what's the right way to capitalize these businesses? How can capital be a better partner? What does capital look like going forward? How is it possible that the entrepreneurs are so innovative on business model, organizational design, supply chain, values? And then you get to the capital side and it's like, oh, we've been doing this since the 80s. And you're like, really? There's nothing since then? And on top of that, like, you know, you're you're the only woman in the room over and over again, explaining to men, like, what's the difference between tights and leggings? when tights are the number one seller on the website. And you're like, I think we could add more value if we brought our consumer into the the shareholder base and the stakeholder base differently. And so I went to Brennan in 2016 and I was like, I have my own idea. I got to go pursue this. And I, I had two jobs for about two years. I ran Revelry full-time. We sold a pet food company to Catterton at the time. We raised some majority equity. We sold another business. And I got Harbinger up and off the ground. And it, it was a bit old school. I raised $2 million. And I was like, I'm going to hustle and, and demonstrate that our thesis creates an advantage that shows up in pipeline and cost structure, not because I have the most money, but because we've got great ideas. And we did that. And so, you know, Harbinger is built on the foundation that the future of private equity is going to look different than it has. That shows up in how you build your team. It shows up in the composition of your founders. It shows up in how you allocate capital. And it shows up in how you share share in the upside of that capital. So we're highly concentrated. We're highly specialized. We're overbuilt on the operating side. And we share our carried interest, which is sort of unprecedented with our founders. And it creates this really integrated ecosystem of founders that are um, sort of growing in tandem, right? And, And working to solve these big consumer puzzles together. Talk to me a little bit about, first of all, on the diligence side, how do you um, analyze founders and make decisions in terms of what to actually invest in? So we have tried to create a replicable process framework, right? Some pattern recognition that also... um, gives us insight into the nuances. Like we really want something that looks different, not the same. So it's a, it's important that we're applying pattern recognition to actually find new ideas, right? Not find another hymns or something, right? Like we really want something new. Um, so our approach is one, the people. Like our first call is we're, we're basically only listening to the founder and how they talk, how they set priorities, who they've hired, what they're like to work with. We're, we're looking for those relational elements because EQ is so critical at this stage. A founder's success at the Series A is going to be driven by their ability to recruit the right people, bring together the right stakeholders, sell their vision. And so in the first call, it's not I'm not looking for TAM, I'm not looking for margin. I'm just like, what is the advantage 
you bring to the business, right? Is there something here that you specifically, where you as a founder are an asset, um, not just a business leader? And so that's really important to us. After that, the framework is really around a couple specific elements. We're looking for a category that has certain criteria. It's a category that is under-innovated, right? It's been decades since there was material evolution in that category. We're looking for a category where there's real reason to believe someone's going to buy instead of build so that there's that path to exit. We're looking for categories where there's precedent of that. So we have a real confidence in the ability to, to sell the business. We're not underwriting IPOs. We're underwriting strategic exits. And so on the category side, many companies screen out because it, they're sort of, it's too small. It's too crowded. Um, it, there's already market leaders. There's no real path to exit other than you know public markets or, or it's unproven or unknown. So that, that's one of the key screening. As we get into the business specifically, we like businesses that have a real perspective that's showing up in their product, it's showing up in their brand, it's showing up in their engagement and acquisition model that is both practical and emotional. So we want to tie into both of those elements. That's the stickiest thing. That's the way you bring your marketing costs down. You know, you have share of wallet and share of heart. We want that in the business. And so we're looking closely for indicators of that. Um, And then finally, we want a really resilient financial model. So we have a strong bias towards um, high gross margin businesses on a relative basis. We're looking for really durable, resilient growth. You know, acquisition, great. Can you acquire intelligently? Repeat rates? kind of all I care about. That's really where you look at loyalty and excitement by the consumer. Capital efficiency or EBITDA is, is a great indicator of like stewardship. You know, are, are the founders using resources intelligently or sort of spending exorbitantly? And as we see that, you're like, you've got a great person that has an edge that they contribute to the business. We've got a category that will benefit from this vision. And then we've got the right business model. So it's sort of where to play, how to play, and looking for um, the stars to align. That makes a lot of sense. And that's just awesome. I really appreciate that. I feel like in consumer, there's a lot of talk about how, especially from investors, that we invest in community-led businesses. And I wanted to know, and of course, I'd imagine part of the reason why is because you don't really have those arbitrage opportunities as you used to with um, inorganic growth. How do you think about founders like building, especially at the very early stages, like a community-led business? Like, What does that mean to you? You know, I think that there's the, you know, a couple of years ago, it was like content commerce, right? You know, inspired by Glossier. So we investors are simple folk and we get sort of attached to these ideas. The, the reality is, is they rarely apply to all businesses. There are certain businesses where community is important. And then there's others where community is really not that important. So you build a community and it's just really expensive because the consumer's like, I don't really value this. I'm not going to pay for it, right? It doesn't change my behavior. Maybe it's a nice to have, but it's not a need to have. So what we think more about is like, what's the advantage in your marketing mix that gives you a disproportionate share of voice and some leverageability? And so Usual Wines, for example, they don't have like a community, right? It's not like we look at their organic social audience following as a key metric. They do a huge percent of their sales through SMS. 
That is the community, right? Their consumer is not necessarily gauging with each other, but they are texting directly with the company to make sure they're never out of wine. That's our metric for success on that business. You know, you flip over to Vitruvi, which is home fragrance, and they have a long form content blog. They have an editor. They have a very deep customer service team. And that's something where community is deeply built in. Their affiliate network, their consumers are sharing ideas, right? Around like, what is this? do for your home? How do you blend your own sense? And Sarah, the founder, is very much part of that. So when I hear sort of venture capitals talking about these buzzwords like, you know, community-led businesses, I think what they're looking for is engagement, right? This, the, this signal from the consumer that they will buy the product without being paid to do so. How do you think about investing in companies that are cross-category. I was talking with Morgan, uh, the founder of Public Goods, and he said he had a hard time fundraising because he went cross-category pretty early on. And a lot of investors said, no, the strategics only want, you know, single category companies. And so I'm just kind of curious on how you think about cross-category. Yeah. So we actually, you know, this is funny. We were talking about this this morning, actually. I think there's two different ways you can you can build your business. One is you identify a segment and you innovate up and down the segment. So that's about like, I'm going to create different strategies around home cleaning, right? And you sort of stay in the space and it's about price. It's about format innovation. And it's about supply chain efficiency. And so as you start to develop good, better, best pricing, what you see is actually fragmentation of your brand efficiency but um, consolidation of your operating efficiency. I think on the flip side, you know, public goods or some of the other companies that we've talked about, they target a consumer segment. And the way you build depth with that consumer segment is you offer them more and more products that are related to each other. In theory, um, public goods should have a very efficient consumer model, brand model, although they have a very inefficient operating model. So in, in that business, right, it's you have to watch your working capital. You have to watch your, your margins because you never get scale on any single product if you're not careful. And so the way that I think about it, and I could understand how public goods sort of scare people, if you go too broad too soon, the risk is that you have neither brand efficiency nor operating efficiency because you actually don't sequence your products right. So you know if you start selling too many things too fast, you get, you know, the suburban mom and then you get the single guy and all of a sudden you've got different audiences and marketing campaigns. And so not only are you sourcing thousands of SKUs from different commands, but you also have this, this marketing complexity. I think where public goods has probably done a really good job is they have a very specific audience, right? They, they know what, who their consumer is, who they're targeting. And so what they were likely able to demonstrate ultimately to the private equity groups that were willing to look close enough is we can funnel endless amounts of products with thoughtful research audience. So share of wallet, share of mind, we're sort of renovating their grocery cart. And I think sort of ability to overcome that bias with private equity is, is a little bit of time. It's finding really consumer experience funds, but it's also probably some data, right? And being able to, to demonstrate you really know your customer, you know what they want, and that you have a history of launching successful products. So in those businesses, being disciplined around killing your long tail is so critical um, to avoid complexity. 
I really appreciate that response. That makes a lot of sense. And just how you phrased it, that was, I felt like I learned a lot there. When you look at companies um, in the early stages, are you kind of looking at it in maybe those two macro models of how are you going to do brand efficiency or operating efficiency? Well, sort of, yeah. Where I think we're, we tend to operate more on the, the brand efficiency side and the consumer side. Within that, we have a strong bias towards businesses who can create a substantial amount of scale before adding a ton of complexity. So we do like businesses where the, you know, the initial SKU set, the initial assortment can drive the business towards a certain scale, and then you can add additional complexity, primarily because at the Series A, you're just not raising that much capital. So we don't want millions and millions to get tied up in working capital as you hold minimum order quantities of several hundred SKUs. And so that's just our bias. But we do CPG. So if you're in apparel, you have to take this risk, right? You have to have a level of assortment. Public goods, it's their strategy. If you're a retailer, you have to have a strategic assortment or someone's not going to come back, right? If they can only buy two or three things. So our bias around SKU efficiency really comes from the fact that we're sort of specialized in consumer products like CPG. If we were to also look at retail, apparel, et cetera, we'd have to get more comfortable with a little more SKU risk. Do you ever get worried about any of your companies becoming overcapitalized, over fundraising as they scale? Definitely. I mean, I think one of the most dangerous things a company can do is force overvaluation and overcapitalize the business. The result is ultimately like lack of productivity, but more importantly than that, it just creates like a frenzy, right? Where you're not really serving your consumers. It's a difficult place to work and it just doesn't create value for anyone. And it's, and it's really not that fun for people. You know, part of why we built our model to be concentrated, part of why our fund has stayed really small is we believe at the Series A, more often than not, capital is not the solution. It's actually like intellectual capacity or experience. And so we've had founders come to us and be like, I need more money. And we're like, okay, let's go through this. And you come back and you're like, nope, you don't need more money. You need to make some hard choices, right? We need to discontinue these skew lines. We need to tighten up your operating model. We need to look at your team. And the result is a consolidation of efforts drives efficiency. And the real beauty of not using capital to solve problems, but but trying to find the, sol- the solutions through operating efficiency is it's regenerative versus dilutive. So when you sort of make that intellectual investment, make the hard choices, avoid using capital to fund through the growing pains, you end up with a more resilient, dynamic, adaptive, stronger operating model. And we've seen that in our businesses. And it's really hard for founders to make those choices, right? Because they're very attached to products, business lines, people, brand campaigns. But that rationalization can be really enormous in terms of unlocking the real product market fit. What is one thing you would change about venture capital? Well, I mean, we're trying to change the part we don't like. Look, venture capital is extremely homogenous. And it's homogenous not only from the gender perspective, right? Like that's been well documented, but where people go to school, what their training was before they joined, what their life experiences were before they joined. And the result is that there are really large gaps, productivity gaps, investment gaps, social gaps. And we also just think like it's it's not 
where the world's going in terms of the founder of the profiles. Founders are increasingly diverse from diverse backgrounds, diverse races, diverse genders. And so there's a, a real requirement, right, for private equity to address that more head on. And it's uncomfortable. It really is. And it's super difficult if you've already built your team and you've sort of already recruited 300 people and you're like, wow, how are we going to manage this going forward? So it's sort of like one step at a time. But I think, you know, they're working on it, right? So large funds are making those commitments. They're um, raising pocket capital to experiment with specific strategies. They're more proactively managing their talent pipeline. And so I'm an optimist. Like I, I think people are at least talking about it and, and hopefully action follows the discussions. One one conversation that sticks out when I was talking with Soraya Durabi, she spoke about how real changes really have to happen from the top, unfortunately, with investing in, you know, emerging managers that do come from, you know, non-traditional backgrounds. I completely agree with you though. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I love to read. So this was um something I was looking forward to talking about. So on the personal side, this is going to sound a little dorky, but um, Sapiens by Yuval Harari was a book that really inspired me personally. I, I listened to it actually on Audible when I was traveling a ton about two years ago, and it provides just unbelievable context of the history of humanity. And it really gives you sort of like empathy and patience for how long change can take. It also gave you this really interesting understanding of the role of narrative in just sort of like human human buy-in and evolution. So as a, as a mother, as a friend, as a community builder, but also as a business person, each of those lessons were sort of inspiring and contextual and just like, you know, your, your life and how you're building your life. So a must read. If you don't want to read the thousand pages, listen, it's beautifully read on Audible. And then some recent business books. I have a couple here. So Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson is a fascinating read. And so is shoe dog. It provides such great perspective on like how hard it is to build a business. And the fact that when you start a company, you can't expect it to go from like zero to a hundred million in five years in a linear fashion. There are so many sort of challenges that were overcome. It was over enormous periods of time. You understand the element of luck. You understand the, the obsession that needs to be involved there. They're just really great entrepreneur stories from more of like an operator perspective, um, no rules rules. Netflix and the culture of reinvention is a great quick read, and it it gives you some actual items that you could take back to your company today to increase talent density, accountability, and innovation. Um, it, it literally is sort of drafted as a like step one, step two, step three, and so it's a great read. What's the best piece of advice that you've received? I have a real bias towards action, if you can't tell from this conversation. So the best advice I've received over the last year was I had um, a, a real mentor of mine say, sometimes the best strategy is to do nothing, right? This idea of patience and this idea of historical perspective, letting something play out was, it really um, stuck with me. I think there's a very delicate balance towards decisiveness and reactivity. And in businesses where there's so much volatility, the risk of being overly reactive is you lose all efficiency. You're constantly changing course. So for anybody who sort of has a bias towards action, is operating in a volatile environment, practicing inaction and patience, and better finding that line between decisiveness and reactivity has been really transformational for me in the last year. 
I love that. I love that. Sometimes the best strategy is to do nothing. That's great. My final question to you is what's one piece of advice that you have for founders? You know, I think the one piece of advice that I'd give people is never to stop being curious about your business, right? To never assume you've got the answers and now it's just one, two, three to go execute. The businesses are constantly evolving. And so continuing to be sort of obsessively curious about your consumer and how he or she is evolving and how he or she uses your product and why he or she loves your product. Don't take anything for granted. Don't take assumptions because as you pursue those deep dives, you tend to find the real gold in terms of what differentiates your brand. Where can you really stand out? What's another mine in your mind, you know, your field of minds that that can help defend your brand? And your brand is a living, breathing thing. So it's it's changing, it's not stagnant. And so when I see founders sort of like settle in on a strategy and assume it's it's inevitable, I get nervous because you know that's just not the case. Another great piece of advice as we wrap up, I had a, a great mentor of mine say, you know, these businesses are always solving for their strategy, right? Like don't assume you know the strategy. It's not your job to find your strategy. It's your job to keep solving for it before you run out of time and resources. And so, um, you know, even as I invest my first dollar at the Series A, in the back of my head, I'm like, time's ticking. I have to go find the right strategy now. I love that advice. Well, Megan, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. This was a real pleasure as well. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Megan. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>